Good morning. Today's Bible reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 16, uh, verses 1 to 17. Observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv he brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God an animal from your flock or herd, the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession, in all your land for seven days. Do not let any of the meat you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain until morning. You must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord your God gives you, except in the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening, when the sun goes down on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. Then, in the morning, return to your tents. For six days eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day hold an assembly to the Lord your God and do no work. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your town, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and follow carefully these decrees. Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful, be joyful at your festival, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will, at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of, tab- of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Thank you, Robert. Always love listening to Robert read so I can hear how Australian or English his accent is. (laughs) Halfway between, I think. Well, our lives as a society, come to resemble um, really the dominant belief system of that society. So even as uh, Australia and our Western world becomes more and more secular and has loves ideas of freedom from oppression um, and kind of takes for granted that's how we all, the whole world thinks, actually those ideas come from Christianity being the dominant faith belief system. Um, so society's religion dominates how we live. Um, I remember 
uh, an old colleague, um, she was from India, and she'd been back visiting family. And she was telling us this anecdote, and she said, you know, and it was sweeping the front yard, you know, very, before the sun came up, as if, of course, that's when you sweep your front yard. I was like, oh, hang on, why before dawn comes up? I said, oh, well, because it's bad luck for anyone to see you sweeping up. So because in the Hindu culture of where her family lived, what determined a lot of day-to-day life, how it ticked along, how things worked, was fear of superstition and fear of angering sort of mean gods who you needed to appease all the time. So for them, day-to-day life looks like fearing mean gods. But what about us? If, if we're all, if we are really all about um, knowing and having been rescued from the slavery and death of sin into right relationship with God, if that's what we're primarily about, how should that display itself, show itself up in our lives? What should our hearts, so our personality, what makes us tick, um, how we usually think and respond, what should they start to look like? Uh, We're in Deuteronomy, Moses' sort of last hurrah speech to God's people in the wilderness before they go into the promised land. And over and over, God's message delivered through Moses has been, remember, remember God's goodness and grace and provision, even in the face of rebellion against him. Uh, Moses has talked about the dangers of forgetting God as they come into these times of plenty in a land that they'll enjoy warning against becoming just sort of really pleased with themselves, becoming cold-hearted and enslaved to idolatry that will come if they forget God. See, what God really wants for them is to enjoy the land as an extension of enjoying him, loving him, the best life there is. But today, today's chapter in, partic- chapter in particular, Moses gets down to details How are Israel to reflect and resemble the God they serve? In particular, how will their calendar, how will the shape of their year reflect who God is and what is he like? How will their calendar reflect their hearts towards God? Or to put it another way around, chapter 16 is about how God sets up the rhythm of their year to show them and remind them, help them to remember his heart of generosity and call them to respond in joyful generosity. Because I don't know if you noticed as Robert read through that, God stacks the calendar of Israel with festivals, with parties. And not just any old parties, generous, hospitable, joyful celebrations of thanks in response to God's generosity. And this chapter doesn't even include all of the celebrations that were called to, and big, big um, feasts that they were called, commanded to do. Just tells us about three of them. Now, I don't know about you, but we just about cope with Easter and Christmas, don't we? And lots of Christians, especially, I find, get grumpy about those turning into big feasts. But it's easy to miss, for Israel, God commanded them to have a good knees up several times a year. What does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about what he wants for us? What he wants from us? So joyful generosity, that's what we're on about today. Joyful generosity. How we are encouraged to respond in 
joyful generosity to the generosity God has shown to us and will continue to show us. And we're going to do that by looking at the festivals or parties that God sets up. And then we'll bring it together to see how we can respond, given we've been shown even more generosity from God. So there's a brief outline in your leaflets. We'll look at the first uh, festival first, which is a rescue party. So first, they were to celebrate the main event in their lived history, which itself anticipated the main event in the history of the whole world. They were to celebrate the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread, like both together can one sort of super festival. Verse 1, Observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv he brought you out of Egypt by night. So the Passover remembered the time when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Uh, In the tenth plague he sent, all the firstborn males were killed, except those who'd painted their doorposts with the blood of the family's best lamb sacrificed for the occasion. And every year Israel would reenact this by sacrificing a lamb and eating it as a reminder of how God had miraculously rescued them. And then the festival of um, unleavened bread. So they were also to have bread with no yeast for seven days. Why? Because, verse 3, you left Egypt in haste so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. So basically, they were commemorating being in a rush. It's a funny thing to commemorate, isn't it? Our car commemorates us being in a rush and not getting up early enough by all the empty up-and-go boxes on the floor. But Israel's rescue from oppressive slavery, this, this wasn't like the great escape or cold. This. It wasn't, this wasn't plucky prisoners executing a long-term plan of escape through a tunnel or something. This was no workers' revolution. It was all God's doing, and they simply had to rush, make haste to keep up with God's rescue. And that meant there was no time to put yeast in your bread and give it time to rise. That's what they're remembering. So Passover and unleavened bread, a combined festival at the start of the year, front and center, that deep, so that deep in the fabric of their identity as a people was rescue, redemption, being freed from oppression with the promise of plenty. Now, of course, we know that Passover was uh, an archetype, a precursor anticipating the true Passover, Jesus. So at the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus identifies himself as the Passover lamb whose sacrifice rescues us not from Egypt, but from sin and wins us forgiveness. Now, everybody likes the idea of being freed from oppression, freed from slavery. But the question is, excuse me, the question is, what comes next? Israel were rescued from slavery so that they could be free to live in the land and serve God. And that's the freedom that each of us are made for, to serve God. The trouble is, each of us in our own way reject God reject his loving rule, and find ways to love and serve ourselves instead, trying to cut God out of the picture. And the Bible calls that prideful rebellion sin. Uh, We think it's freedom, but actually it enslaves us, never quite delivering what it promises, and showing us up to be stingy 
bad masters of ourselves, leaving us in darkness, deserving death. But Jesus in his generosity, and we'll come back to Jesus' generosity, he chose to sacrifice himself to pay for our sins. When we trust and believe in him, when we hand over the reins of our life to him as our Lord and Savior, we're forgiven. His blood means death and judgment passes over us, thanks to his being perfect. And we use part of that Passover meal, the, the bread and the wine, or we use juice, as Jesus told us to, uh, to remember him and his sacrifice for us. But we don't have Passover anymore, do we? Or unleavened bread, all these other ones we'll talk about. Well, that's because, what's that? I don't know if you saw the Matildas last night, anyone watch them? Pretty exciting. But imagine they win the World Cup, right? Well, celebrating Passover would be like celebrating them winning the, in the round of 16 against Denmark and just forgetting about the final. That's why we don't celebrate Passover and these other festivals anymore, because something bigger and better, the ultimate prize, has been won. We look instead to the cross, because there we see our sin paid for, our assurance of eternal life in right relationship with God, guaranteed. There we see our sin problem is more serious than we dare realize. And there we see God's love for us is more than we ever dared hope. So baked into who we are, what we remember and what we look forward to with certainty is rescue, redemption, freedom. And so for Israel, before they'd ever gathered a single grain, they had this visceral, tangible party reminder that God is good. That they're already free, free to love him and serve him and enjoy his blessing. So the Passover for them, the cross for us, um, set us up with this orientation, this default attitude of grateful thanks as our starting point. We've already won. We're already ultimately okay. So we don't need to be stingy or grasping or looking after number one to win at life. We can't lose the eternal life that God has blessed us with. So we can head out into life with this heart of joyful generosity. So that's Passover, the rescue party. The next two are a first fruits and a camping party. Now, if Passover and the unleavened bread were about remembering, so are these two. But these two are especially about responding in joyful generosity. So the festival of weeks, so you might know it better as Pentecost, 50 days after, the, after Passover. That celebrated the first fruits of the crops. And then later on, there's the festival of booths. That comes after the harvest is gathered and processed and ready for, for eating or for selling. And I guess that point, that, that point when they've gathered everything in will be the time of year that be most tempted to feel self-reliant, pleased with themselves. The easiest time to forget how things had been. So to remember how things had been, they had spent seven days leaving in temporary booths. I think that's just a way of polishing the fact that it's tense. It's camping. 
to remember how God had cared for them in the wilderness. Now, I know some of you love camping. Sharon's takeaway from Exodus, from the 40 years in the wilderness, is that camping is an instrument of God's wrath. Okay, that's how Sharon sees it. But certainly for Israel, plan seven days camping every year for the whole nation. Well, that would help them not take things for granted, wouldn't it? So both festivals are an act of remembrance. But let's not miss, both festivals were huge parties. Great big knees up. So verse 10, celebrate. Verse 11, rejoice. Verse 13, celebrate. Verse 14, be joyful. Verse 15, celebrate. And these weren't VIP, guests-only parties. They were for the whole community with special mention made to make sure that those who couldn't afford to contribute anything were included and didn't miss out. So verse 11, rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your, in your towns, because they didn't have their own land to make their own goods, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. So there's no room for stinginess or snobbery when the whole promise of the party is based on God's generosity. There's no exclusivity because they've been reminded that everyone there, rich or poor, would still be a slave in Egypt if God hadn't rescued them. Let me ask, is that the kind of joyful generosity you view people who are less well-off than you with? Maybe not even just financially, but relationally less well-off than you. Because however well-off we are, we're only that well-off because of the generosity of God in gifting us the ability to make that money or run those relationships well. And is this the kind of joyful generosity you've got towards people who are not yet a Christian, who don't believe? Or are you permanently grumpy about how godless they are? Because the truth of it is, without God's generosity towards us, you and I would be at least as lost as they are. So it's our job to extend God's generosity and to witness about his generosity to us in Christ to them. To keep the party invitation over, open so that as many as possible can join in. Now the assumption for these festivals uh, is that they will be lavish affairs. The logic goes like this. Verse 10, um, bring a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. Okay, so in proportion to what he's given you. Then there's the promise, God will be generous and bless them in the land. And so, verse 16, no one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. God has been and will be generous towards them, so they should all have something to offer in thanks. And notice, as with the principle of keeping a Sabbath day, God bakes into the calendar of his people that life was never intended to be about just doing, striving, gathering in, getting ahead, just working all the time. God's always included time out 
to enjoy him, to enjoy the fruit of all your labor. Make sure we actually have some fun, to have some fun celebrating. And notice verse 16, this is compulsory fun. Not compulsory fun like you might have had at work where you're doing some tiresome team-building exercise and you'd much rather be sat in front of your computer. No, this is its so important that they have this fun together because it enshrines in the fabric of their society gratitude to God at the heart of who they are as a people. So the grumps don't get to have a say in it. They are having this party. So how does all this apply to us as God's people today? Well, our party is a hearty party. Our response to the generosity God has shown us in Christ is to have a heart of joyful generosity. Joyful generosity. Because as amazing as Israel's lived history was of redemption from slavery, um, as gracious and protective of them as God had been in the wilderness, as lavish as his promises for the future were, in the land were, all of that seems tiny compared to the generosity God has shown us in Christ. In a section of 2 Corinthians about joyful generosity, the Apostle Paul says this, and it's a good memory verse because it means the same thing when you just isolate it as when you look at it in the rest of the passage. So uh, 2 Corinthians 8 9, thanks, Graham. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So we know Christ's grace. Another way of saying grace is we know Christ's generosity. Because, you see, he's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got all authority over all heaven, all earth. All creation was made through him and for him. So we can't think of anything, we can't look at anything that doesn't belong to him. And he's under his authority. Christ is rich beyond all imagining. So what does he do with that riches? He doesn't cling on to it. In his compassion, he saw that we were dirt poor. He saw that we traded in life with God, thinking we'd get a better deal living for ourselves, only to find ourselves ripped off by sin, enslaved to sin and its consequences, ending up owing our lives. So for our sake, Jesus, rich beyond all measure, became poor, became one of us, took our debt of sin on himself, bearing the consequences. Also that we might become rich, become adopted into God's family. We don't just get a clean slate, not just a little bit of it. We become co-heirs of Jesus' inheritance, of perfect eternity with him, in perfect joy. We're rich in Christ. We will reign with him. I mean, how good a deal is that? And if you're not putting your trust in Jesus here this morning, I want to ask, is whatever deal you've put your trust in delivering that much? Is it going to deliver that much? 
as the Holy Spirit helps us to see and understand and feel that generosity, it's, it's too much generosity for us to contain, too much grace to keep hold of ourselves. And it over, the biblical picture is it overflows out of us. We become people of grace. Sharp edges knocked off. Warmer. More forgiving. More open to others. And opening up ourselves to others. More interested in meeting others' needs than our own. Wanting to serve each other. Searching for ways to get on with people who we would normally find difficult to get on with. Searching for ways to heal divisions. People of grace and generosity. If you know that grace and generosity of God, show that grace and generosity. Give like Christ gave as we have opportunities to do that. And there are lots of ways we can show that generosity in our time, our attention, our effort. But we must also talk about money. For Israelites, they were to bring up a a pro... It's hard to say. Get me false teeth back in. Israelites were to bring a proportion of what God had blessed them with as free will offering of thanks. Not to get God to bless them. This isn't a prosperity preacher. If you give, God will give you that tenfold kind of thing. No, they were to give because God had already blessed them. Verse 15. And celebrate the festival, for the Lord your God will, will bless you in all your harvest and in all the works of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Because that will be true, bring your offering. In general, we earn our money with hard work, don't we? On the whole, long hours, hard work, difficult people. So we, can end, we end up feeling a sort of a sense of entitlement to it. I've, I've earned that, so it's mine. And money becomes really personal. And I was thinking of saying something like, if you want to know what your heart priorities are, look at what you spend money on. But actually, when Jesus talks about money in the Sermon on the Mount, he says it the other way around. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, Jesus reckons our hearts follow our treasure. So if our money isn't being given over in joyful generosity in some way, and because money's so personal to us, well then there's a good chance that our hearts aren't being given over in joyful generosity. So how much is generous? How much giving of money is generous? I hope in the context of today's passage, you see the more important thing is not how much you give, but whether or not your giving is an expression of joyful thanks. That's the more important thing. As Paul puts it later on in a letter to the Corinthians, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. So our giving should be joyful generosity. It shouldn't be like the results of my dad draw, my dad's dad draw. Have you got one of these, a dad draw? It's an excellent filing system, okay? You get a bill or something, something you know you shouldn't lose and you should do something about, but not yet. And so you chuck it in what used to be your sock drawer, but now is overflowing with 
things that are important and you should do something with, but you haven't. And my dad had one of these, his dad drawer, bulging at the seams. And he discovered one day, he was really pleased with himself because he discovered he'd been paying two electricity companies by a direct debit. He'd never properly cancelled one of them and kept this payment going because it was just a set and forget thing. And he was very pleased to get back two years of electricity bill money. See, giving to church is best done electronically, but don't let that translate into you missing out on feeling the joy of that generosity. And don't forget to review regularly in light of pay increases or pay decreases or extra costs what generosity looks like for you. And remember, God does expect us to look after our families and meet our obligations, pay the bills, and all of that. And that means some of us will have very little money spare to give. But lots of us will have something we can give away. So how much? Well, what about tithing? People often bring up tithing as a principle from the Old Testament of 10%. Is 10% generous? Actually, if you add up all the tithes in the Old Testament... Uh, a tithing is more like 27%. So who's up for that? No. Okay. <laughs> Only the very rich can afford that sort of thing. I think, uh, and this is not scripture, okay, but I think 10% is a good base level to be at from which you can enjoy joyful generosity above and beyond that, depending on your means. Of course, it's, everyone's mean, um, situation is individual. And by the way, I think most of your generosity should be going to church and Christian organizations. Because Australians are generous. Um, most Australians give to charity. But only Christians will give to Christian things. There's a much smaller pool of people to draw from. So only your giving, as Graham said, with some help from the network, only your giving and that help means we can keep going as a church. Now, if you want more information, um, there's these booklets on the table on the way out. There's a lot more to go into about thinking biblically about giving and then the practicalities of it. And as Graham said, if you want to know where we're up to, we've got pie charts and everything. That's the finance update. These are available monthly. I don't routinely put them out because I don't want to send the message that all we care about is money. That's not right. We're more interested in our hearts of joyful generosity. But you can always have one of those. That's this month's. But hear this, God doesn't want our giving just to keep the lights on. God wants our giving to be a, a symptom, an overflow that, of his, him having filled us with his generous grace. He's filled us with his grace and, and he's left the tap on and we keep bubbling over with this joyful generosity. We want our giving to be part of a bigger picture of that joyful generosity. So to finish... I'm just going to do something that will make me feel really uncomfortable, and perhaps you a little bit as well. I'm going to talk about myself and what we do as our household. Not, please hear me, not to big myself up and say, oh, well, if only you were as generous as I am, sort of thing. But just to, like, I think people talk around this, and I just want to give you some concrete ideas about generosity. And you might think, after you've heard this, we're really stingy and you do much better, but here we go. This is how it is. So giving money-wise, our starting point, even we had very little, has always been 10%. And about 90% of that going to our local church. 
And then we've cheerfully, carefully, but cheerfully worked out whether we could afford to support um, a friend doing Bible translation. I did that. A couple of compassion kids. I did those. Uh, Daniel Jansen working with ES. Um, contributing the extra it costs to um, pay for John. Um, I think that's all of it. And it, at the moment, it feels like that's our limit with mortgage payments going up and that sort of thing. Um, but it, on the other hand, it's hard to cry poor when you know, our, our mortgage payments have gone up $800 in one year. What was I doing with that money before? And it's hard to cry poor when I've got Netflix, Optus Sport, watching the Premier League. You know, and we, we, we spend money feeding a pet. I think there's some scary figure about the average Australian household spending $3,000 on animals. As a small dog, we don't spend that much. But you know what? It's a joy. It's a joy to be generous like that. And it's really helpful in keeping us, reminding us how generous God is. And it just stops life being all about how well off you're becoming, how much you've got to spend. Now, some of you won't be able to do any of that, afford anything like that. Israel's calendar reflected who God is and what he's like with all these opportunities for joyful celebration and commands for compulsory fun. So what generosity could you build into your calendar? Well, we're stuck with Christmas in our calendar. Here's us a few Christmases ago. A great gift to us in our attitude to hospitality, I think, has been moving to a different country, making our own way without um, anyone who knew us, no family here. Uh, It's drawn out in us, I think, the hospitality was there and put it on steroids. And we love Christmas and we love keeping it open to whoever will come along. So this is our Korean friends, the Jews and the Watsons and Margaret. We've had others over the years as well. I reckon in a lot of who we think we are and what we think we do is our routines, we can just decide to be generous. We could have decided that Christmas is special family time and keep it to ourselves. No one would have criticized us for that. But I wouldn't swap the daft Christmas that we do have for all the world. Uh, We can know things like about our personality type. We can know that we're introverts. Just be generous relationally anyway. You'll find other times to recharge, find ways to recharge, and it's not going to kill you. And extroverts, look, just tone it down a bit for the rest of the <laughs> And keep up the good work. Keep up the good work. Yeah. God invented fun, and he expects us, he commanded the Israelites to have it. So set up your year to show joyful generosity in the way that you have fun. Open up, give time, give patience. Have the grace shown to you bubble over into everything about you. And as we remember God's generosity to us, as we look forward to the unimaginable blessing we'll enjoy in heaven, Let that bubble over and show up in joyful generosity in all the ways we can. Verse 15. 
For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the generosity you've shown us. You show us every day and the, the amazing prize you've got saved up for us in eternity. I pray you'll keep opening our eyes and hearts um, to keep appreciating more and more your generosity to us in Christ. And for that to translate into our hearts being ones filled with joyful generosity. Amen.